0: Hi, everyone. As most of you know, throughout this season, Jim has been waging a relentless war against our opening theme music. Last week, we ran a poll in which we asked you, our listeners, to choose between the perfectly acceptable existing music and three alternatives suggested by Jim. That poll has now closed, and it's time to reveal the winner. The people have spoken. And this, unfortunately, is what they've said.
1: This is your worst nightmare,
0: Ollie. I almost feel sorry for you. Yeah, Jim. To be honest, this is what I would regard as as a crisis in the life of the Equip Project podcast. Um, I do get a, a kind of I do have a lot of empathy um, for those involved in the Boaty McBoatface <laughs> fiasco.
1: Um, it definitely does feel akin to that. I love democracy. It's so easy to manipulate. I knew I had to split the Conservative vote, so my original plan was to divide the Conservative listeners uh, between your dreary X-File music and the French cafe music, but the listeners rubbished that option. Well, they made some important and
0: helpful points, actually, Jim. Uh, They did point out that neither of us was French, um, which was, which was was a good observation. And then they also said it sounded like the music played in a
1: care home. I know, that single comment almost destroyed my strategy. So I had to change tack and make the last option a vote splitter. So that's why I went with the medieval music. I didn't realise that you were thinking
0: st- so strategically, Jim, otherwise I would have planned accordingly. Um, <laughs> I feel like you've outfoxed me here. Uh, but I honestly don't know if I can live with this, Jim. Like, how on earth can we go from playing the doobadoo song into a serious uh, episode on anything? <laughs> well, look, we'll review it at the end of the episode and see if we can hammer out a compromise. Okay, okay, well... Um, um, I'll, do, I'll do my best to, to, to negotiate my way out of this crisis. Um, but in the meantime, we've got one more episode of this season before we take a break for summer. Throughout this series, we've been discussing the various Twitter storms that have sprung up in recent years. So we've been thinking about a number of controversies that have arisen amongst evangelicals in the United States. And Our aim has never been to indulge in a bit of gossip. We don't want to do that at all, but to use the controversies as a sort of early warning system
1: for Christians on this side of the Atlantic. In this final episode, I'd like to do two things, Ollie. First, we're going to take a step back and survey the various storms we've discussed so that our listeners can see the logic that underpinned the season. And then secondly, we're going to think biblically about how to survive the storms that are heading our way over the next few years.
0: Our first two episodes exposed two of the biggest challenges that we'll have to face. In our discussion about the late Tim Keller, you said that his approach, while admirable in so many ways, may need to be supplemented as we move into a culture that regards Christianity
1: as a negative thing. Yes, in the language of the book of Acts, the Keller approach worked in Athens, but we're no longer in Athens, we're in Ephesus. In Athens, Paul had a rational dialogue with non-Christians, But in Ephesus, he was dragged by a mob into the amphitheater. And in that episode, we talked about two main responses to that new reality. First, we have to make sure our churches offer a relationally rich environment, you know, a real spiritual home that can immerse the upcoming generation in Christian values. And then secondly, we have to prepare believers to handle marginalization and injustice in college and work life. The second big challenge we identified came out
0: of a discussion about the sensitive topic of abuse in the church. During that conversation, you made the point that perhaps the biggest ideology in our culture is starting to seep into
1: the church. Yes, there has been a sort of concept drift in recent years, where the concepts such as abuse and trauma have been widened to include a really broad range of behaviours. And at the same time, the doctrine of complementarity has been positioned as a prime example of the big ideology you just mentioned. Critical theory. So, male leadership in the church is described as a power structure with women playing the role of the oppressed. Complementarity is being viewed as an underlying systemic issue that maintains a theology that says some people are favoured by God, some people have more power, and God supports them having that power by exerting it over others. Now, progressives argue that complementarity creates an environment that says God supports power over saying God is about, I don't know, love and inclusion. And the big point I was making in that episode, Ollie, wasn't actually about complementarity. I was trying to highlight the massive risk of allowing this ideology called critical theory to seep into the church.
0: Our three most recent episodes might be described as three wrong responses to the challenges we identified
1: in the first two episodes. Yes, what we called we might call the Andy Stanley tactic. Um, was to unhitch ourselves from the uncomfortable bits of Scripture, to set them aside and to employ deliberate ambiguity to downplay cultural controversies. But as we saw in that episode, that tactic undermines the sufficiency of Scripture.
0: Then we talked about the new, new atheists, men like Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray and Roger Scruton. These men are atheists, but they have a deep respect for Christian values. In fact, they argue the West is doomed if we jettison those values. It's really encouraging for Christians when men like this seem to stand shoulder to shoulder with us in the culture wars with the progressive left. But you see a big danger for the church
1: coming from these new new atheists, don't you, Jim? I do. But we have to remember that my enemy's enemy is not necessarily my friend. These new new atheists are right-wing humanists. They have no desire to return society uh, to the Christian gospel. They want to bring the West back to the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment can helpfully be described as a cut flower culture. You know, Think of a bunch of flowers in a vase. They look nice. But the truth is that the flowers are dead because they have been cut off from their root, from their only source of nourishment. And so eventually the flowers will wither and rot and die. And that is what happened to the Enlightenment project. Man made himself the measure of things, cut himself off from God. With godless arrogance, he promoted himself to be the master of his own fate, and that produced the utter horrors of the 20th century. So your
0: point is that Peterson, Ferguson, Murray, and Scruton are all children of the Enlightenment. They are right-wing humanists, and all forms of humanism are anti-Christian. So we need to be very careful about allying with them in our struggle with the progressive left. Yes,
1: the huge risk here is that by allying with these thinkers, we reduce the gospel to an argument over values. And the church's project becomes a sort of syncretistic religion that seeks power in order to maintain a set of values in society. But the gospel, remember, is about saving men and women from sin and death. Christian values never saved anyone. The third wrong response to the coming storm might be called a retreat
0: into conspiracy thinking. As society becomes more and more polarised, Christians can be tempted to retreat into an echo chamber where we increasingly rely on familiar and comfortable voices. We retreat from reasonable dialogue in the public square and start to insulate ourselves from those with whom we disagree.
1: Yes, I remember introducing the ridiculous term Teflon hermeneutics. (laughs) Teflon is the stuff used to coat non-stick pants. And conspiracy theorists can become like Teflon. Nothing will ever change their minds because nothing ever sticks. You see, once I've decided that anyone who disagrees with me is a government stooge, a pawn in the service of a secret cabal of villains, then I need never listen to anyone who disagrees with me. And that will lead Christian believers into a dark place. So we've thought about the two big
0: storms that are heading over the Atlantic towards us. Christianity will soon be seen as a completely negative element in society, and ideologies like critical theory will begin to seep into the church. And we've thought about three wrong responses, setting the scripture aside, forging a syncretistic alliance with right-wing humanists, and retreating into the insular world of conspiracy theories. I guess the obvious question then, the one we want to address in this final episode, is what is the right response?
1: Yes, I I was thinking last night about how to answer that question. And I remembered that in in the middle of this season, um, as a bit of relief, uh, we studied Psalm 42. It
0: was part of our occasional series on how to study the Bible. We took Psalms 42
1: and 43 as an example of poetry. That's right. Well, about 11 o'clock last night, (laughs) I wondered if the right response to the coming storms is encapsulated in another psalm. It, it just seemed to me like a perfect way to end this season. So I'm thinking, Ollie, of Psalm 46. Um, so what we'll, what we'll do over the next few minutes is use the study techniques we talked about earlier uh, to analyze uh, Psalm 46. And you'll see how it answers your question about how to respond faithfully to the coming storm.
0: Okay, so let's read it together now. Provided you're not driving or walking, you may wish to open up the scriptures at Psalm 46. It's a well-known and well-loved psalm. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is with her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, he lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, he burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob
1: is our fortress. When we talked about how to study poetry, uh, I suggested that the first step is to identify the sections or the stanzas of the poem. And a good way to do that is to look for a repeated refrain in the poem. Verse 7 and
0: verse 11 are identical. They both say, The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our
1: fortress. That's right. So we can helpfully see this psalm as having two verses or two sections. The first section is found in verses 1 to 7, and the second, shorter section, runs from verses 8 to 11. And they are very different. I mean, the first section is full of noise and chaos, but the second section is a scene of a battlefield after the battle is over. It reminds me of a description of the battlefield at the end of the Battle of Waterloo. Um, There was just this eerie silence. The moonlight picked out the heaps of dead horses and overturned wagons and broken cannons and weapons and flags strewn all over the ground.
0: The first section has a sort of sandwich structure. Verses two and three describe the chaos of a natural disaster. Verse six describes the chaos of kingdoms falling. And then in between, in the center of the sandwich, we have verses four and five. They describe this peaceful and secure scene
1: within the city of God. Yeah, your point about the sandwich structure becomes very clear uh, when we look at the word pictures used by the psalmist, and that was our second method, wasn't it? So in the original language, the psalmist uses two key words, the word to move and the word roar. So in verse 2, the earth itself moves. In verse 6, on the other side of the sandwich, kingdoms move, or totter, uh, as English has it. But in the middle verses, the city of God does not move. And you get the same symmetry in the use of the word roar. So in verse 3, it's the waters that roar and foam. In verse 6, it's the nations that are in uproar.
0: So in this first section, we have a picture of total collapse. The very fabric of creation seems to be falling apart. And the kingdoms of the earth are in uproar. But in the center of all this chaos, there is a peaceful and secure scene. Here we find ourselves in the city of God. Its walls are secure and its resources will never run out. So even in the midst of chaos, God's people can know joy and peace.
1: How should we understand all this imagery, Jim? Well, I think the psalm is talking about societal collapse. So even verses 2 and 3, which seem to be talking about natural disasters, are probably symbolic. Uh, Mountains in scripture are often used as metaphors for strong, stable government. Think of Hebrews 12, uh, which uses Mount Zion as a picture of God's government of the universe. So when we see a mountain fall into the sea, we are being told of governmental collapse, the crash of a stable society into anarchy. In the book of Revelation, we get exactly that picture of a great mountain falling into the sea, and the early church interpreted that part of Revelation as the collapse of the Roman Empire, and it was certainly a partial fulfilment of that prophecy, in my judgment. But in the midst of chaos and societal collapse, the Christian can remain serene and secure, Because remember that our citizenship is in heaven. Our names are already written there. So we are already part of the city of God, and it is eternally secure. There's that lovely picture of a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And that's a picture of God's very own life flowing out abundantly, refreshing and strengthening us. That takes us back to the opening
0: words of the psalm, God is our refuge and strength. So God acts like the walls of a city. We are safe when God is our dwelling place. But he is also our strength. His spirit indwells us. So the terms refuge and strength reflect the lessons which the Lord Jesus teaches us in John's gospel. Us in God and God
1: in us. Christ is both the vine and the bread of life. And he is present next to us, close beside us. He is the God who is there. A literal translation of the phrase in verse 6 is, God gives his voice. And that's in contrast to all the sound and fury of the nations. God speaks in such a quiet, unobtrusive way. It reminds me of an insight I was, I was given about that moment in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus calms a storm. I, I have talked to you about this before, Ollie, about the horror of watching Christian films in the 1970s. I mean, words could not describe the horrific things I have seen. I, I remember one scene when the Lord Jesus was apparently calming the storm, and the veins in the actor's neck bulged, his eyes rolled around like a maniac, he roared as loudly as he could. Now, that interpretation is very, very wrong. It was nothing like that. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, an exuberant dog greeting its master. You know, it leaps vertically into the air, barking furiously. And this master simply says, Down, boy. It's a quiet command that the dog obeys instinctively. And that is how nature responded to Christ. Christ simply looked at the towering waves that seemed higher than the boat he was in and he said quietly, Be still. Down, boy, said the master.
0: When we move to the second section of the poem, recorded in verses 8 to 11, we find a very different scene. All the noise and tumult of war has gone. As you said earlier, this is the scene of a battlefield after the battle is over. The bows have
1: been broken, the spears shattered, and the shields burned. Yes. Yes. The other big difference is that this second section is much more global. We aren't looking at a besieged city anymore. A great global battle has been ended, right to the ends of the earth. And then, in the poet's most dramatic moment, we actually hear God speak. We move without warning from third-person speech to first-person, and we hear the Lord utter those famous words, Be still, for I am God. That phrase has the
0: idea of stop striving. What can the psalm teach us that allows us to stop
1: striving and to recognise that God is God? Well, survey the battlefields of history. See how time and time again God quietly brings down the proud and the rebellious. No matter how defiant a nation becomes, no matter how hard it tries to live as if God didn't exist, one day God will quietly speak and that culture will collapse into chaos. All that will be left is the wreckage of a destroyed society. That's what happened to Rome. Or think of Hitler's so-called Thousand-Year Reich that ended in the sort of chaos of his bunker in Berlin. But there's a sort of global and futuristic feel to this second section. Because one day, the final battle will be over. Armageddon will be arrogant humanity's decisive defeat. Mankind will learn that human beings are little contingent creatures and God is God. I mean, it will show up the sheer absurdity of man's rebellion. It's like Hamlet trying to overthrow Shakespeare.
0: So, from the first section, we learn that God is our present refuge and strength. In the second section, we see that he is our future hope. And it is that quiet
1: confidence in God which will bring us through the storm. The last study technique for poetry that we talked about is to look for Christ. And we find Him in the repeated refrain in verses 7 and 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The Hebrew words translated with us, are found in Isaiah's prophecy when he talks of Emmanuel, God with us. He stands at our side. That verse calls the Lord the God of Jacob. And I take that to be a reference to Jacob's experience at Bethel, when he suddenly became aware of the unseen kingdom. He saw a ladder to heaven with angels ascending and descending as they went about the business of implementing God's government over the affairs of men. When I was a child, I thought that God stood at the top of the ladder, commanding the situation from his remote and lofty position. But if you read the text carefully, it tells us that the Lord was at the bottom of the ladder, right beside his sleeping servant. So when Jacob wakes up, he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Perhaps some listener is going through a storm. Every apparently secure aspect of your life has crumbled away. You feel as if you've nowhere to stand. Perhaps like Paul in Second Timothy, you've been deserted by those you thought would be loyal. Paul says, at my defense, everyone in the province of Asia deserted me. Everyone. Even the Ephesian elders who had wept loudly when they said goodbye to him. But, says the apostle, the Lord stood at my side. Emmanuel is next to you. Even in this storm, he's an ever-present help in trouble. He is your refuge and strength. Thanks, Jim. There's so much
0: reassurance uh, in all that we've talked about today. We're going to take a Break over the summer, but we look forward to being back with you in September for season eight. And I suppose I have to play this awful piece as we leave, don't I, Jim? I guess that's kind of compulsory. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. No, Jim, I'm sorry. I just can't do this. It's too, <laughs> too awful. I can't. I'm not sure I can
1: cope any longer with this okay look i have a suggestion that will put you out of your misery i'll take anything at the moment but as you well know my only real aim was to get rid of that lugubrious sci-fi music that i've had to endure for seven seasons so here's my suggestion we each get to veto one of the four options and then we'll go with the option that got the highest number of votes okay well instantly my veto is the dbd song and i instantly
0: i nominate the eeyore like x files music Well, that leaves us with the hurdy-gurdy music then, which I can live with. Good, well, that's a bit better, Jim. And that's a wrap, dear listener. It'll take us a couple of months to recover from the trauma of recent events. So on behalf of us both, we hope you have a fantastic summer and we'll speak again very soon. Keep an eye on our social media uh, for updates and we look forward to meeting again in September.